Hello and welcome to Hypot and Fuse, a podcast all about science, maths and the world around us from the Maths and Physical Sciences faculty at UCL, or as we like to call it, MAPS. I'm your host, Laura Hewison, and I am completely unqualified to be here, but very enthusiastic. With me as always from MAPS is my excellent co-host, the much more qualified Sophie Lane. And today we are joined by our very qualified guest, Louise Hara, Professor of Physics at UCL's Mullard Space Science Laboratory. Thank you for being here. I nearly didn't say that right. (laughs) (laughs) It's very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So, Louise, could you start by telling us a little bit about your areas of research? What are you an expert in? Okay, so I study the sun, so I'm very lucky in that I get to study the brightest object in the sky. And we study it because it has an impact on everything we do. The fact that we exist is because of the sun and it affects the world around us, our technical world, the way we interact through spacecraft, our way we communicate, all those kind of things, the sun impacts. That's really interesting. Um, How did you, like, what sort of drew you to the sun as a research area? How did you end up specialising in that? I could say something flippant that I grew up in Ireland and I didn't see it very often. (laughs) (laughs) I was actually always just very interested in space from a child um, and then had an opportunity as I went through university to get involved in space science. And that was what I ended up in solar physics. It could have been something else, but I ended up in solar physics, which is a nice place to end up in. What's in, what's involved in solar physics? Like, what what is the actual kind of essence of what you are doing every day? So the sun is a huge ball of gas, and it's a magnetic star, so it involves different aspects. So an aspect is a theoretical aspect, so understanding how the magnetic fields interact with the plasma. Um, the other aspects are the observational aspects. So you can observe the sun right across the whole electromagnetic spectrum. You pick a wave band, you'll be able to see the sun in it. Um, so being able to develop techniques to observe the different parts of the sun at, in different ways, at different times, at different locations, and then developing the space instrumentation to do that, which is what we do at Knowledge Space Science Lab. How does that kind of vary from, I guess, I don't know if it's called stellar physics, but just because, I mean, all kinds of people are studying stars near and far Is it much more in-depth with the sun or the same kind of rules apply to both? It's more in-depth in that you've got, you can spatially resolve it. So you can actually see really high resolution detail. So you can't see that in other stars yet. Someday you will be able to. But there's a lot of crossover. So with stars, you can see basically the sun at all stages of its life. Um, Whereas in the sun, we've got it at one point in time. Um, But we can observe the, the dynamics, the activity. We can observe the solar cycle. We can observe really fine-scale structures that um, are dynamic and will heat up plasma. And we can observe the huge eruptions that occur that can affect the Earth's environment. So we can observe those things that are really challenging to do in stars. But we know they impact exoplanets. So those, those eruptions that you're talking about, how do they affect the Earth? Because we don't, well, me, as a person who does, is like, oh, yes, nice tan on the beach. That's about <laughs> my kind of, the furthest that I go for sun worshipping. How does the eruptions that happen affect what's going on in my life? So in your life as well, obviously you can get a nice sun tan. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I'm very pale. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Um, so the way it would affect... Um, your day-to-day life is we are completely reliant on spacecraft these days 
So although you may not confess to it, you are a spacecraft user. Um, Excellent. Yep. <laughs> I've, I've got a TARDIS out the back, actually. It's how I got here today. <laughs> so using your debit cards, using your phone, watching the TV, using aircraft, flying from A to B, if you're on a ship, all those kind of things, drilling for oil, all those kind of things will be using spacecraft. I'm going to put in my Instagram bio that I'm a spacecraft user. Well, you are. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So how how will an eruption affect that? Is it kind of because of magnetic pushes and pulls or is it just like there is a giant jet of solar stuff out there in space and the aircrafts have to go around them? It will affect, and if you pick the example of aircraft, it will affect it because of communication. So with aircraft, obviously, they have to be able to communicate at all times where they are. Um, that's really important for safety. And if they're flying over the poles, which more and more airlines do to save fuel, that's the region that's most, most at risk on the Earth of being disrupted by an eruption. Um, so at the polar regions, you get um, more likely to see aurora, so the northern and southern lights. And that's the region where if planes go over during a, a large eruption, that's when you'll, you'll get disruption to the radio emission. And that means they can't communicate. Um, so if you get a disruption in, the, in that and they can't communicate, they have to divert. So they'll get a warning that this storm from the sun has occurred and then they'll have to divert and that costs the airline's money. And it takes your journey a bit longer. So you may <laughs> Next time I'm sitting in Heathrow <laughs> yeah. waiting for my plane to depart. Oh, bloody Aurora, bloody Aurora Borealis. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. is this, these eruptions, is that what you call that? Was that space weather? Is that yeah, what that's, that is? that's one part of space weather. Right, so what yeah. are the, I, whenever I like talking about space weather, because it makes me, it, like, it feels really cool, like it's the weather in space. Um, what, are, like, what are the other kinds? So space weather is anything that comes from space. So, so that can be cosmic rays. So they come from outside the solar system. It can be anything else from the sun. So as well as the um, coronal mass ejections that we've spoken about, you also get solar flares and they, they will emit highly energetic particles and it'll also heat up um, the Earth's atmosphere quite quickly. So you'll get that response as well, um, the, which can affect spacecraft. They can deorbit early due to that, for example. So the space station is, they always watch the orbit and they'll keep upping the orbit on it to make sure it doesn't deorbit. So you don't want that when you've got people on board. So that's a very sort of real human <laughs> impact of space weather and that. And then you get... Um, steady structures on the sun that will be there for a long time and they'll produce what's called a fast wind which for us is hard to comprehend it's 800 kilometers per second roughly so very very fast wind that heads towards us and that'll be a steady wind and that can have effects on spacecraft as well and electronics any sensitive electronics you bombard it with um, high speed solar wind they kind of have capacity to be affected see i always kind of thought I mean, I'm, this is probably something I'm meant to, you know, have a physics degree and remember things. But I always thought that spacecraft, because there there's just not a lot of stuff in space compared to here, that they could just sort of carry on as they are without much interruption. Like, is this because they're so close to us? Or is it, is space actually, is the fact that space is a vacuum, is that sort of, space is true? <laughs> space is a vacuum, but you still have part of the sun in it, if you like. And that can even be felt right at the edge of the solar system. So the Voyager spacecraft that were launched in the 70s are just, one of them is already headed out of the solar system. The other one's just about to head out of the solar system. They can still sense the solar wind. 
So you've still got, it's very low density, it's very low, it's such that you wouldn't be able to feel it, um, but it's still there. And the difficult thing is the particles are charged. So if you've got charged particles near electronics, that's where the danger comes in. So how often are we looking at, say, a big solar weather event or a big eruption? Is it kind of every week, every couple of weeks? It varies um, with time. So there is something called the solar cycle, which varies over an 11-year period. And the the peak period is during the peak of that. Um, But even when we're at a period now where the sun's relatively quiet... I was so about to ask, what, what, what's he been up to lately? He's <laughs> being a bit know. quiet. <laughs> but even with that, we've had some cracking aurora have appeared in the, the past week. So when, when you see an aurora, you know that the sun is, is dancing somewhere or another. Are there any like space weather events that um, we should be like worried about? Like, are there some things where, you know, like, you know, like a space hurricane? Space just, like it's such a stupid question. Really no, like, I love it. I, I like the name of that, and it's actually not such a a silly description because a hurricane is very fast winds, and that's what we essentially get from the sun. Um, so there have been studies looking into what the worst storm is that we could get and the economic impact it would have across the world. Um, so there was a, a big storm in the eighteen hundreds that during that period we weren't so technically advanced, so it didn't have such a huge impact. So people have tried to look at what the impact it would have on current day. And it could, it could affect um, electrical grids, so electricity power cuts could happen, airplanes could be grounded potentially, Um, you could have impact on the communication at all levels, Um, all those things, not being able to use your debit card anymore, all those kind of things suddenly countries start to grind to a halt because we're so used to having that global infrastructure even transporting our groceries from a to b and all that kind of thing we're all using spacecraft all the time do you mean i wouldn't be able to order my packages on amazon (laughs) it would be a major crisis (laughs) how do we how do we predict that how do uh, can we definitively say oh that will happen september 2030 space forecasting no, Ooh. we do have space weather forecasting is a thing. Can I become um, a space weather forecasting girl? I'm sure you can. <laughs> and I think that probably will be a thing that the will happen. on Pluto today. <laughs> yes, exactly. But it, it's, it's actually, actually is a real thing. So the Met Office in the UK has a space weather section. This is my new job. <laughs> I'm going back to retrain. <laughs> I want those business cards. <laughs> yeah, I, thought you wanted, I thought you wanted spacecraft user. I can have both. Um, so they do have a section on space weather and the reason for that is because industry is dependent on understanding space weather and then responding to it so if you know something's happening in advance you can do certain things to respond so you can adjust things um, the loads of the electricity grid to help it um, protect itself for when this, this big rush comes in. That was a great fact that I learned when they when they do that. It's because I just imagined that electricity existed. You know, it was just there. I turned a tap on and the stuff was warm. And then I learned that they have to, like, feed it in and out. Mm. And they have to moderate it to the television breaks during large broadcasts. Yeah. And once they got it completely wrong because there was an unscheduled break in the in the royal wedding <laughs> once and everybody went to make a cup of tea and it nearly crashed the UK <laughs> electricity grid. It's one of my favourite facts I've ever learned. <laughs> well, it could be even worse than this big space weather event that we will get eventually. So, so uh, 
So how so how does I mean, I say we know how weather forecasting works. I don't personally know very well how weather forecasting works, but how how do you predict what the sun is going to do? Like, because it, it, okay, I mean, it's not seasonal. It's not, you know, how do you how do you how do you start? In the same way that we do in the Earth, really, because if you maybe look back fifty years ago for Earth weather forecasting, if we want to call it that, <laughs> I don't know what. Um, we're probably in the same position now with space weather forecasting as we were 50 years ago. So we have got a, a fleet of spacecraft that observe the sun, and we are getting in closer at the minute as well. And pe- people are actively processing that data, and you can see, you know when you look at the sun, you can see something nasty building up. So you can you can see that. I thought you weren't supposed to look at the sun. I've, I've <laughs> please, been shielding my eyes for many years. Please don't look at the sun directly. <laughs> look at our website to see images from the spacecraft. <laughs> Thank safer. you for clearing that up, Louise. <laughs> okay. um, so, yeah, you, you can get some good knowledge to give you some prediction. In terms of saying on Friday this week there will be a storm at 2231, we are nowhere near that accuracy yet. But we can give a probability that an event will occur. But then the additional problem is whether it'll have a big impact on us because we are so tiny compared to the sun. Mm. <laughs> that, that's, that's another difficulty in predicting that. I, I wanted to kind of ask, actually, you know, we have this very symbiotic relationship with the sun. It gives us life. But it is just one star out of millions and billions and trillions out there in the universe. Is it particularly special if we kind of just got really lucky here and are just like next to the best star in the entire universe? Or are our we favorite. just our favourite? Or or have we just kind of, you know, happened upon one that's just very normal, but it happens to do what it does for the Earth? It's actually quite a dull star in the grand scheme of things. So oh, but we like it. <laughs> we like it. And it is a very beautiful thing. Um but it's a middle-aged star that's kind of not too active, not too quiet. It's sort of in the middle. Likes um, taking long walks on the weekend <laughs> and having a nice pub lunch yeah, on a Sunday. Yeah, so it's not... You get other stars where the amount of flaring and coronal mass ejections from it would make life very hard to exist on its planet, so... Yeah, I was going to say, is that why we exist? Because it's like, like we're thinking, oh, wow, that's that we have a boring sun, but if... Like, if we, if, we had a a, really, if we had a really interesting one... If we had one, a we teenage like, son that was yeah, just, like, like... Super erratic. Raging on the weekends and then, like, sleeping yeah. in till midday every, yeah, every day. Yeah, so good. But I think it's partly our location, too, is the main thing, that we're uh. not... Too, I mean, if we were Mercury's distance, right, it would be very challenging. So that that's where we're sending our spacecraft. <laughs> and that's not somewhere I would want to be. We send our spacecraft there, but you couldn't survive there yeah so that we send spacecraft close to the sun to understand yeah. space weather but how do we build a spacecraft that can survive space weather without knowing what it is okay so the main problem with being close to the sun is the heat so that that's the main issue with it because no matter where you are in the solar system you'll still get space weather but the closer you are to the sun you're going to get the temperature is increasing significantly. I would see. I would. I would see how that would make sense. Yes, yeah. I wouldn't imagine us getting a lot colder. No. So getting close. The the biggest problem is with the electronics. So mm. we've got delicate electronics that everybody's got a nice smartphone these days. If you've 
I put one out in the sun like my mother did when she visited me. She put her phone out in the bright sunshine, one of her very hot days of summer, and the phone just switched itself off and going, too hot, can't do anything. And that was just at 35 degrees. Mm -hmm. And this is when we're getting temperatures over 500 degrees. So it's like sticking it in an oven and putting it up full whack and leaving it there for a few years <laughs> and expecting it to work during that time. It just won't work. So we had to... Uh, develop a heat shield so that was developed in it's like a big protection in front of the spacecraft that faces the spacecraft and it takes the heat um, for all the instruments which is very good of it um, so that the front of the heat shield will be around 500 degrees centigrade so mm. it'll be hot 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 and then behind it we'll be at a balmy kind of 25 30 for our instruments Oh. So they'll be quite comfortable behind there. God, that's amazing. Very pleasant. Mm. So this this spacecraft that you're, you're speaking about, is this the one that you have been working on? It is, yeah. So this is the European Space Agency suborbiter mission that will be launched in hopefully February 2020. Woo! <laughs> can, you tell, can you tell us a little bit more about it and the project and what it's trying to do and what you specifically did? Because this is fascinating. Okay, so this project has been going on for quite a while, and one of the reasons it's been going on for quite a while is because of the heat shield, to get that right. So the spacecraft is being built just a bit north of us in Stevenage by Airbus um, Defence and Space UK. Um, so people don't think a lot comes out of North London, but this spacecraft that I'll be <laughs> blasting to the sun will be. Um, and then on board, there are a suite of instruments on board, and half of them will be seeing the sun and half of them will be touching the sun. They're so actually going to touch it? Anything that flows past the spacecraft, the instruments will be touching, measuring, all different kind of things from now, what goes past. Now I'm just imagining a spacecraft with all <laughs> tiny <laughs> little hands <laughs> sticking it's out. An octopus. Going, <laughs> it does actually have a boom sticking out, so with instruments on the boom. Uh, and so what does the, the actual spacecraft look like? How big is it? Is it kind of, you know, is it a massive thing or is it smaller than we would think? It's about three metres high, maybe a bit taller oh. than that. So it is, is taller than us um, and it's heavier than us <laughs> together. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's quite a big beast. And it's currently being going through its final testing in Germany now where we shake it, we heat it. And make sure everything works under the shaking and the heating. Mm. How long is it going? Is it going to come back? It will be then shipped to Cape Canaveral, where it'll be launched from there. Like when it's launched, is it gone up oh, into space then forever? It's bye bye forever. It's not one of the ones mm. that lands. No, no, it, no. Is that sort of? That's quite sad. Isn't it? <laughs> I I kind of bond with any inanimate object, so I'm kind of like, oh, I'm gonna miss it. Yeah. Have you given it a name? Well, we just call it Solorbiter, but we we did have a kind of farewell at Airbus to the spacecraft before we went to Germany, and that was a bit sad going. Bye, little spacecraft. Yes. Uh -huh, that's so exciting. I can't imagine having made something that's going to go into space and, like, touched things fun. that are going to go into space. <laughs> Is it really cool? It is cool. Did you put something on it that was like, you know, like a little... Louise pitch? says hi. Yeah. <laughs> if I did, I wouldn't be allowed to tell you. No. <laughs> and so what was what was your specific role in... The, what, what was your kind of part of this wonderful co-project? So our instrument were with the UV imagers. Um, so that's three telescopes looking in different temperatures and also looking at different fields of view. So one will 
observe the whole sun and the other two will focus in on the high resolution stuff. Great. And what will they be used to kind of discern from now on? So it will be the first time we'll be up close to the sun and we've never been able to image the sun up close before. So we need to be able to see the sun in order to know what's coming past the sun. Um, so that'll be our visual, if you like. And the other really neat thing about this mission is we'll use Venus to get energy from Venus to get out of the ecliptic. So normally we'll be, spacecraft will be sitting in the ecliptic plane, but we want to knock out of the ecliptic to look down at the poles. And we've never seen oh. what the poles look like. Oh, that's so, clever. Yeah, so that'll be the first ever sight of solar poles. What do you think they look like? Do you think they'll look radically different? I think they might do, because I think they they drive the whole activity cycle of the sun. And that's the key thing that we don't have. And it's like exploring a completely new regime. We haven't seen it before, so we always expect to be surprised. That's amazing. Very exciting. So how does that work with Venus? Is it like kind of... It's like a slingshot. Like a slingshot, yeah. 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 (laughs) Sweet. Oh, that's cool. Um, so there's it's the the solar orbiter, or the the solar orbiter, or the solar orbiter. So the solar orbiter, it's not the only one going up there right now. Correct. There's this other cheeky little one called the Parker Solar Probe. How do we feel about him? Are we like, are you guys all working together or is it like one big scientist race? Are you all kind of, <laughs> like, I, I'm imagining it like wacky races, but going to the sun and you're all trying to like whack each other out of orbit. Uh, it's definitely not wacky races. <laughs> we actually work very well together. I mean, Parker Solar Probe has a, it was launched in August and probably, well, if you saw that on TV, it was a very nice launch. Um, and it's a smaller spacecraft, and the reason why it's smaller is because they want to get in closer to the sun than we will, but they can't see it. So, because uh. they're going in much closer, they have no ability to observe directly, because they don't look at the sun directly. So we're <laughs> so. doing like a look-don't-touch thing, and they're doing a touch-don't-look thing. We're, we're touching, touching as well. Um, we're, touching as well. we're doing both. We're doing both. We're doing remember, both. Th- remember the hand ship. Hand ship. <laughs> so how close, it, how close is close? How? So for them, they will get in, if you think about the distance between the sun and the earth, they'll get in 4% to the sun, um, whereas we'll get about 25%. Oh. So they'll get in much closer, and just tomorrow they'll start their very first perihelion, which is a, one of their first closest points. And we're currently with a spacecraft that we, we also work on at UCL, the Hanodi spacecraft. We're working with them to point to see, so that we can see for them, to see where possibly the wind is coming from that they're measuring. Oh. So we've been having lots of fun trying to work out where those sources of the wind might be to point in the right place. <laughs> so the is the bit, that that's what we're going up to look at. So the corona in the sun is the outer atmosphere of the sun. So in some senses, we're actually already sitting in the corona in the Earth. So it extends far away. But it's the bizarre part of the solar atmosphere where as you go away from the surface of the sun and you move away from the surface of the sun, the temperature starts to go up rather than go down. So mm. it's like walking away from an oven or a campfire and getting hotter as you go away. Why does it do that? 
That's a fine question. (laughs) (laughs) So that's one of the questions that we want to answer. So it is because of the magnetic field. The sun has this magnetic field and we get energy out of that through different ways. So it is because of that. But the exact reasons why are highly debated. Excellent. And and I saw that one of your areas of expertise is coronal mass ejections. Correct. Is that like a solar flare or is it something slightly different? Coronal mass ejection are the eruptions that we're talking about earlier. It's just a longer name description of them. So it's anything that is released from the sun, mass released from the sun suddenly. Including a solar flare? A solar flare is a release of electromagnetic energy. So it's it's a bright flash, if you like. So it's more related to the electromagnetic energy, whereas a coronal mass ejection is the mass. Ooh, excellent. Mm. That was that's that's my takeaway fact. So what else is being built uh, at the Mullard Space Science Laboratory um, that's related to this? So another instrument that's being built there is a solar wind analyzer, which Chris Owen is PI of, and that will be one of the instruments that touches the sun. And in fact, you can see um, a model of it in the Science Museum at the minute in their sun exhibition. That's so exciting. exciting. Have you had a bit to do with with that particular analyzer? Not me, but um, what we're doing now is the two groups. So uh, the solar wind analyzer is in the space plasma group, and I'm in the solar physics group. And we're starting to combine the science together to lead up to using both our instruments together once they're up there. And then you will start the solar and space weather forecasting channel. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll be presenting. Thank space you. I like yeah. that. <laughs> well, there's one question that we always ask our guests on Hypot and Views, um, and that is, who is your science hero and that is because quite often um people have somebody that inspires them to get into this area and we would like to hear about yours okay so there are a number of people that i over the years have i guess i've looked to as mentors but the one person that has consistently inspired me is somebody from my hometown which is a small place in northern ireland (laughs) And not much comes from there. <laughs> Would you like um, to name check it? <laughs> yes. In Lurgan, County Armagh. Um, and it's Jocelyn Bell Burnell who discovered pulsars in the 60s um, and should have possibly been given a Nobel Prize for it. But during her whole career, she has been an excellent leader in physics and she's always been very generous with her time to early career people and has being enthusiastic and encouraging people from all parts of communities to go into physics. So she would be my person, I would say. And what an excellent person at that. Thank you so much for joining us to listen to High Pot and Fuse, and we'll see you next time for some more Maps Chat. <laughs>